Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Wednesday. I hope everyone has had a wonderful week so far. On Monday, we continued our election series. We talked about immigration. That's a hot button issue for a lot of you and a lot of your friends, especially for Christians, knowing what is going on at the border and how we are treating migrants. So go back and listen to that episode. It's a very complicated subject. We just didn't have time to go into all the facets of it. If you want more details, on our immigration system and some of the problems with it, you can go back and listen to an episode that I did last summer called Immigration. Just type in Relatable Immigration uh, wherever you get your podcasts and you will be able to listen to that and learn a little bit more about our very complex and bogged down immigration system in the United States. Today, We are going to talk about the latest in police shootings and the riots that are still going on in the country. There's still chaos that's waging. Maybe you've noticed that I've posted about this less on Instagram. And that is because, as I said last week, I am trying to be on Twitter less. That is where I am seeing uh, a lot of the depictions of the violence that's going on. And I think it's really important to stay in the know. I think it's important for me to keep you all in the know and to know the things that are going on uh, in America's major cities. But at the same time, sometimes it's just too much. It's not that I want to put my head in the sand and pretend like nothing bad is going on, but it's just easy to get overwhelmed. And sometimes we have we have to take a step back and realize that The realist reality, as we've talked about on this show, is God's eternal plan of redemption that has not faltered, that has not been hindered, that has not been paused, that has not been messed up or thwarted in any way. As Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. No plan of God's can be hindered or stopped in any way. And that is ultimately the plan, the track that we are on. God is above all the mess. He's above all the chaos. He is not limited by time and space. So that means that he is not going along this path of life uh, in the same way that we are. He is sovereign over all of it. He is suspended in the eternal now. So he is not looking at what's going on and wondering what's going to happen next, how he is going to have to come in later and clean up the mess. He is uh, completely in control. He is immovably on his throne. And sometimes I have to take a step back from social media and the news to remind myself, of that. Again, that doesn't mean that you have to deny the craziness that's going on or that you can't simultaneously remember God's sovereignty and be in the know because you can. And I I, I try my best to do that. But sometimes, sometimes you just need a break. Nevertheless, today, I need to get back into it and just remind you of the things that are going on in America's major cities. There has been a report that has been circulating for the past week or so that 93% of the Black Lives Matter protests are peaceful. And a lot of you guys have sent me that and have said, my friend sent me this. Can you please respond to it? Well, I don't have that much to say about that. That doesn't surprise me at all, actually. Uh, I... I don't think that that makes a a difference to me. That doesn't make a difference in the argument that riots and looting are bad. I have always said from the beginning, uh, after the George Floyd incident, I have said we should not conflate the violent looters and the protesters and the 
arsonists uh, with the peaceful protesters, that these are different demonstrations. Sometimes there is crossover in the people and there is a crossover of mission and purpose uh, a lot of times, but they're not the same groups of people. Sometimes they don't have the same aims and sometimes they uh, do not even share the same values or anything like that. And so we should not conflate the peaceful protests, whether or not we agree with the reason for the peaceful protest, we cannot conflate that with the rioters and the looters. I have said that from the beginning. They are distinct. Uh, the media have actually been the ones doing the conflating much more than the people on the right have. Uh, they claim every time someone criticizes the looters or criticizes the rioters that we are criticizing racial justice, so-called racial justice, or we are criticizing peaceful demonstrators and protesters when that's just not the case. Like I said, I don't agree with most of the protesters and their aims, and I think the media hypocrisy covering the protests versus covering church gatherings in regard to COVID uh Uh, the COVID uh, and the threat that those gatherings pose. I think that that is appalling. I think that the hypocrisy is laughable, but I do believe in these protesters' right to protest peacefully, COVID or not, without government interference, not without argumentation and not without criticism, but without government interference. Um, Are all BLM protesters or activists rioting and looting and burning and killing people? No, of course not. But Is BLM and their supporters, are they, uh, their supporters on the left, are they denouncing the rioting and the looting and the killing of cops? No, they're not. No, they're not. Um, At least not Black Lives Matter, the organization. There might be people that support Black Lives Matter that are denouncing the shooting of police officers. But as an organization, the core of the movement, no, they're not denouncing these things. Remember, Ayanna Presley, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, she said on MSNBC, there must be unrest in the streets as long as there is, quote, unrest in our lives. AOC said that people are going to loot and, and riot and commit crimes as long as uh, we do not meet their economic demands. Uh, We have heard that riots are the voice of the unheard. That's that decontextualized quote from Martin Luther King in an attempt to defend destroying people's property who committed no crime. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the lead essayist of the 1619 Project, she said burning down property is not violence. We have heard that property can be replaced, um, that businesses have insurance, and so it's really not that big of a deal and that we shouldn't have anger about those things. CNN stood in front of Kenosha, Wisconsin, when it was burning down to the ground and said the demonstrations were mostly peaceful. So the left, the media have been carrying water for these violent protests. Whether or not they were the majority of these protests, uh, the ones that were violent, that are violent, the minority of these protests that were violent have been defended by the left and by the leftist media. So that 7% means that even though it's not fair to characterize every supporter of BLM as violent by any means. It does mean that the movement as a whole and the organization itself is supportive of it. It certainly will not come out and say, hey, this is bad. This is not what we're about. This is not what we're fighting for. It is what they're fighting for. There's a reason why you will not hear the leaders of BLM talk about Sequoia Williams, the eight-year-old black girl that was murdered by a BLM writer in Atlanta after Rayshard Brooks, an armed suspect, 
was shot and killed. Or Antonio Mays, the 16-year-old black boy killed by a BLM and Antifa activist in Seattle a couple months ago. Or David Dorn, the black former police chief, uh, murdered by a Black Lives Matter looters who not only murdered him, but also live streamed his murder on Facebook. They're not going to criticize the rioters. And so you're not going to hear them say these people's names. They are on the side of the rioters. They believe that this is just a part of the justified uprising. You will not hear BLM or any of their supporters or Democratic politicians talk about the black lives lost to the rioters because most, if not all of them, believe the violence is a necessary is a necessary pushback to oppression and that all the anger and the reactions are justified. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't have some Democratic politicians coming out and saying, hey, guys, looting and violence is bad because we finally got them to say that a couple weeks ago when the polls came out saying that Americans actually care about this stuff and that they're feeling unsafe in cities that are run by Democrats. So you did get some Democratic politicians saying, hey, maybe this isn't the best tactic. But overall, they, of course, support the movement and they support the resentment that is behind the movement. There is also a more sinister aspect to this movement and the violence that's going on across the country. As Andy No wrote for The Spectator a couple months ago, this is also about purposely inhibiting economic recovery in an effort to help Democrats uh, and subvert capitalism. No has been following closely and studying these movements for years. He writes this for The Spectator. Quote, at its core, BLM is a revolutionary Marxist ideology. Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Kohler's BLM's founders are self-identified Marxists who make no secret of their worship of communist terrorists and fugitives like Asada Shakur. They want the abolishment of law enforcement and capitalism. They want regime change and the end of the rule of law. Antifa has partnered with Black Lives Matter for now to help accelerate the breakdown of society. This is Absolutely true. Go back and listen to episode 272 of Relatable called Which Black Lives Matter. We talk about the history of the organization and the violent communist regimes the leaders have openly supported. We talk about what Marxism actually is. You might hear that word a lot. You might even hear evangelical leaders say, oh, talking about biblical justice isn't Marxism. No, talking about biblical justice isn't Marxism. Talking about Marxism is Marxism, though. And you have to make sure that your definition of biblical justice Justice is biblical and not Marxist because Marxism isn't biblical. So go back and listen to episode 272, where we really go in depth into who these people are and what this organization is. Okay, guys, let me take a break and tell you about Gabby. When you have had the same car insurance or homeowner's insurance for years, you get kind of trapped into thinking that you uh, you got the best rate and you don't need to even investigate to see if you can maybe pay less than you do right now. But don't get complacent because you might be spending more money than you should be. You might have an opportunity to save money. And that is why Gabby exists, to make sure that you stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance. See about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage that you already have have thanks to Gabby, that is G-A-B-I. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive Nationwide and Travelers. All you have to do is go online and you link your current insurance account and in just minutes, you'll be able to see the quotes for the exact same coverage that you currently have. 
Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. That is a big deal. I mean, that adds up majorly over the year. So that is on average $825 per year that you save thanks to Gabby because you get to see if there's a better policy out there where you can save money for the exact same coverage. And you don't want to miss out on something like that. There's really nothing to lose. And if you can't find any savings, like if you go on there and you link your insurance and they can't find anything better for you, then you can just rest assured knowing that you are paying as little as you possibly can for your coverage. And that's also a good thing. So it's really a win-win. They're not going to store your information. They're not going to spam you after that. They're not going to hound you. They don't sell your data. And so you don't have to worry about any of that. You just go on there. You link your insurance. You see if you can pay a better rate for the same coverage and everyone wins. So go to Gabby.com slash relatable. That's G-A-B-I.com slash relatable. It's totally free to do this. There's no obligation at all. It just takes a few minutes. So go right now. Gabby.com slash relatable. That is Gabby.com slash relatable. By the way, Carl Lentz, pastor at Hillsong NYC, has elevated Alicia Garza proudly as a member of his church. This is the same person, this pastor, who wore a no justice, no peace shirt in an interview with Emmanuel Akko. You know Emmanuel Akko from uncomfortable conversations with a black man. A lot of people have asked me what I think about that. He seems to have a very compassionate and good heart with, um, I think, pure motives and a good aim. I think the conversations do the same thing as a lot of left-wing conversations do. They point to disparities and they say that this is without a doubt due to discrimination. And as those of you who are reading uh, Discrimination Disparities with me by Thomas Sowell in our Facebook book club right now, you know that that is a faulty argument, that that's just not true. And I think that it takes one particular story and it extrapolates it into a larger narrative. And I don't think that that is helpful. Doesn't mean all the conversations that he holds are bad by any means. Doesn't think that it doesn't mean that I think that he is a bad person. But I do think that many of the conversations start with a faulty premise that is not being challenged. And in that way, some of the parts of the conversations are not helpful and they're not moving the ball forward. And I would include the conversation with Carl Lentz as that, um, as uh, as unhelpful is what I, I mean. And he wore the shirt, no justice, no peace in this, uh, in this conversation. And as Thomas Sowell says, no justice, no peace is a phrase that sounds good if you don't think about it. And it's horrifying if you do. Everyone thinks that their cause is just. So does that mean that everyone can create anarchy and disturb the peace until they get their way? And by the way, I would ask this pastor, what do you mean by justice? What do you mean by no peace? Is it biblical to destroy property and livelihoods until your group's demands are met? Always, always, whenever you're talking to people that make these very catchy phrases and they repeat them, uh, always ask them what they mean. Always require them to define their terms exactly. Keep pressing them. What do you mean by justice? What do you mean by no peace? Do you have an example of how this has worked? Do you think this is moral? Is this backed up biblically? Can you show me the facts to back up this particular assertion? What do you think about looking at this particular phrase from a different angle? Well, what about this logical conclusion that this seems to be pointing to? I think asking clarifying questions to people who uh, use these social justice phrases that sound really good and sound very catchy, I think that's probably the best way to engage with these uh, with these people. 
this movement would not have legs if it weren't for the theologically and politically confused evangelical leaders that are running cover for it. And yet here we are. As I have said, we are seeing not only the depravity of man and the deceit of Satan in all of this, we are also largely seeing the failures of uh, of pastors, of professors, and parents on full display. People are very confused and people are engaging in chaos. That is not justice, not according to God's word. And God is the creator of justice. He's the definer of justice. Andy Noe's article goes on to say this, quote, The U.S. is getting a small preview of the anarchy Antifa has been agitating, training, and preparing for. Indeed, law enforcement is a precondition for Antifa and BLM's success in monopolizing violence. Those who are harmed first are the weak and vulnerable, the people who cannot protect themselves. Small business owners in Minnesota pleaded for mercy, even putting up signs and messages in support of the rioters, but to no avail. The destruction of businesses we're witnessing across the U.S. is not mere opportunism by looters. plays a critical role in Antifa and BLM ideology. Their stated goal is to abolish capitalism. To do that, they have to make economic recovery impossible. Antifa sees a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to exploit an economically weakened America during the coronavirus pandemic. Remember, we talked about a couple weeks ago, I think it was exactly two Wednesdays ago, uh, September 2nd, about uh, the article in NPR interviewing the author of the book In Defense of Looting. The author declared looting um, as a tool against capitalism. It is the opposition against the idea of private property. Private property is something that Marxists, aka communists, do not believe in. That is why BLM, as a Marxist communist supporting organization, is for that. It is why Antifa is for the looting. That is why this whole movement, uh, that is what this whole movement is essentially about, not about defeating racism, but about destroying capitalism, the Western rule of law, individualism, the church, anything that it has existed as a pillar in American society has made America both good and great. They want to destroy. The author of the book also finished this book in April and claimed, quote, a new energy of resistance is building across the country. Now, I'll remind you, April is before the George Floyd incident, uh, when all of these riots started happening. The reaction to all of these incidents that are happening with police brutality are planned. They have been planned for a long time. It is orchestrated. It is organized. It is well-funded. It has been in the making for years. Uh, COVID and specifically the lockdowns and the economic distress that they cause were the perfect setup for the chaos that we are seeing right now from these left-wing groups. That's not a conspiracy theory. I'm not saying that all of these Democratic politicians are in cahoots necessarily, knowingly with BLM and Antifa or that COVID was manufactured for this reason or that these incidents are manufactured for these reasons. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that they are using the opportunities that they have, this perfect storm that has been created to accomplish their goals and they accomplish their goals through violence and chaos. These radical leftist groups used these crises and the unnecessary draconian measures Democrats used to combat the crisis as a springboard for a movement that they have been planning for a very long time. And the George Floyd incident served as the perfect flashpoint for it. And I think that most people do not realize this. Most people who posted a black square or are using the hashtag or who are talking about systemic racism, I think they believe that they are doing good. 
but it is a false narrative. America in 2020 is not systemically racist. There is no evidence that police officers are targeting black people with fatal force or that the police force is systemically racist. We have gone through these points so thoroughly and so often uh, on this podcast in several episodes. So you can go back and listen to several of those episodes if you're interested in the facts on that. That doesn't mean for the one millionth, jillionth time that I am denying the existence of racism or that I don't think that racism is a problem. It doesn't mean that I don't think that there are problems that disproportionately affect black Americans. I do. And I would love to talk about those and to present solutions to those. And I actually have in the past. I think school choice is a solution. I think that making sure that Planned Parenthood isn't targeting predominantly minority communities is a a good solution. I think that a lot of the communities that are majority minority are uh, run by Democrats that have been in power for decades and decades and have used their power against their constituents, not to actually help their constituents, but just to maintain power themselves. I think that the Democratic Party in some of these major cities, that they are so corrupt and that they have such a monopoly on the political power in these largely black communities that uh, people have not been able to escape, their constituents have not been able to escape their iron thumb. So I think that there are big problems in these communities And so I am not saying that there are no issues here. I'm not saying that there's no discrimination, that we have no prejudice. Uh, I'm not even saying that there are no racist police officers or that injustice doesn't exist in our justice system or that I'm denying that we have had uh, deep problems, deep racism problems in our nation's past. But I do reject the premise of BLM and Antifa that say uh, that says that uh, America is evil and racist to its core and that in 2020 we live in a white supremacist anti-black society that capitalism is bad, that the existence of the police force is racist or even that a significant portion of the police force is racist. I reject that. Uh, That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it where it does exist. Of course we should. Racism is evil. It is a sin. It's wrong. But when we assume, when we assume that racism exists where it doesn't or hyperbolize its place in America today, all we do is divide and shame and slander and perpetuate false narratives. And that is also wrong. Uh, the fact that most people do not know the names of any unarmed white people shot by the police last year of whom there are more than black unarmed people. The fact that most people don't know the names of police officers murdered or the names of black children murdered in the streets of Chicago and New York every weekend tells us that this is not a movement based on justice, but on a particular narrative they believe will usher in the kind of left wing collectivist intersectional future that they want. Remember, Christian, as we talked about either last week or a couple weeks ago, I don't remember. God does not care any less about David Dorn than George Floyd. He is not angrier when a black person dies by the hands of a white police officer than he is when a white person dies uh, by the hands of a black person or a baby is dismembered in the womb. God's anger toward injustice and murder does not increase or decrease based on the skin colors of the people involved, which means neither should ours. As we have also talked about so many times on this podcast, God is an impartial God who demands that we show partiality to neither the rich 
nor the poor to no one. But in righteousness, God says, we are to judge our neighbor. We are to judge each and every situation. You would think based on the outrage, the selective outrage and the social media posts of many social justice Christians that God only cares about injustice when certain races are involved. You would think, according to the things that they say and post, that God is actually very partial, that somehow he is less angered when a white image bearer is murdered or when a black image bearer is murdered by another black person. Newsflash, he is not. He is not. And thank God for that. But this, of course, is how the worldview of critical race theory wrecks people's theology, even and especially when they don't know that they have been influenced by critical race theory. Go back and listen to my conversation with uh, Monique Dusan. Go back and listen to my conversation with Vodi Bakum and Neil Shenvey if you want to know more about critical theory and critical race theory and why it is incongruent with the Bible, incongruent with the gospel. The God of critical race theory is very biased very selective in his outrage, is extremely graceless, offers no path to redemption for people with less melanin. And this is all why, even though I support the NFL, for example, I support the players' right to kneel if their employers allow them to do so, I do not agree with the premise of their protest. Same with the NBA or anyone else. Their outrage is selective, and it is based on a false premise. And with the NBA especially, there is so much undermining hypocrisy. Remember, the NBA actively profits off the slave labor in China. Because of the Chinese Communist Party, Uh, they set up a training camp in a prison state in China and they refused to criticize them. A racist, bigoted and even anti-African regime who is currently colonizing Africa and South America. And they do this while they are claiming the NBA does this while they are claiming that Black Lives Matter here, a place that has created a sports organization comprised of black American millionaires with more privilege than the vast majority of white people will ever have. Um, But we allow for this kind of hypocrisy. We celebrate this kind of hypocrisy. So many people either support it wholeheartedly or they tacitly support it or they just don't talk about it. So it's a movement, a mostly destructive movement that is taking over politics, taking over corporate America, sports, Hollywood, every segment of our society, even parts of the church. And anyone of note who speaks out about it is immediately lambasted as a hateful racist, as if you can't have a problem with anti-capitalist extremist groups and still love non-white people. But that is what they do. That's what white fragility does. That's what uh, the quote, work of anti-racism does. If you stand against their movement, no matter what all the movement is for, that makes you a racist, not because of anything you've ever thought, said, or done, but simply because of who you are, your skin color, and your assumed privilege, and your politics. But that is, that's the whole point. That's the point of a phrase like Black Lives Matter. It is effective propaganda. No one disagrees with that phrase, which they shouldn't disagree with that phrase. And no one does disagree with that phrase. And that makes it very hard to disagree with the organization or the movement without being accused of disagreeing with the phrase. And that is strategic. That is purposeful. That's what Noam Chomsky calls perfect propaganda. That's the whole point of good propaganda. You come up with a phrase that no one can disagree with because it doesn't mean anything. And in the case of BLM, the phrase means a lot of things that have nothing to do with black lives. And when we support the movement, which says ACAB, 
which I'm about to say a bad word. So parents, if you're listening with your kids, ACAB, which means all cops are bastards, which is their slogan, and that there are no good cops in a racist system. When you have someone like Kaepernick wearing socks that depict cops as pigs, uh, when you have BLM rioters in Ferguson several years ago chanting that cops are pigs and they should fry like bacon, then you get the dehumanization of an entire group, police officers, which will inevitably, which does, which is leading to violence against the group. It always has. Dehumanization has always done this, and it always will. When our country dehumanized black people, we saw violence against black people and slavery of black people. As our country dehumanizes unborn babies, we slaughter thousands of them every day. When Germany dehumanized Jews, they threw them in concentration camps and tortured and killed them. And now you have a movement dehumanizing police officers that... Corporate America, that sports organizations, that Hollywood, that the entire Democratic Party supports and part of the church supports. And they are dehumanizing police officers, not based on personal responsibility of each police officer, but based on a collective identity of cops as racist oppressors. You get what we saw in July of 2016 in Dallas, where five police officers were shot and killed. And what you get is police officers in L.A., in Compton, which happened a few days ago, getting ambushed in their car. One of them, a mother, shot in the face. And then this is uh, the uh, maybe not the worst part of it, but just another level of cruel. According to the L.A. Sheriff's Department, protesters stood in front of the entrance of the hospital, uh, blocking the entrance, yelling, I hope they die. There's actually video footage of this. Uh, you think that God doesn't care about this kind of wickedness? Honestly, do you think that God looks at the people who are blocking the entrance to the hospital saying that I hope these police officers die? Do you think God honestly sees them as oppressed no matter what their skin color is? Do you think that he sees the gunman who shot these two police officers in their car as oppressed? Critical race theory would say that they are oppressed if they're black. I promise you, God does not see it that way. Thank the Lord that God is a God of impartial justice. Uh, according to FBI data, 48 police officers were murdered by suspects last year. I guarantee that most of us do not know their names. I know that I don't. Uh, the number of unarmed black men killed by the police last year, 15 compared to 25 white people killed by the police, the vast majority of whom, whether white or black, were violently resisting arrest. Situations do happen where the cop was completely unjustified in using fatal force, but thankfully that is very rare. It's tragic and wrong every time it happens. It should always be investigated, but it is very rare. The fact that you know all 15 names of unarmed black men killed by the police last year and none of the names of the 25 white people, except for the fact that I've read them on this podcast before, but none of the names of the 48 police officers when God cares just as much about the police officers as he does about the black people killed by the police, that tells you that our outrage is being turned out by a machine that is purposely dictating what we care about for their political purposes, not for the sake of justice, for the sake of a cultural and political reshaping of our country that they know is best accomplished through destruction and chaos. Their revolution is hindered by the police, so they've got to go down. Their revolution is hindered by opposition, so you've got to be silenced. It's hindered by facts and reason and history, so that's got to be uh, delegitimized through critical race theory. Speaking of facts, a BLM activists ignored those while rioting in Lancaster, Pennsylvania a couple days ago. Police shot and killed a black man there who was charging at them with a knife in his hand. So if that is not justified, when is it justified for police to use fatal force? 
you would be justified in shooting a person who charged at you with a knife. So why is an officer? And this is this is not just about the officer's safety. This is also about the safety of everyone around them as well. The same thing with Jacob Blake. We've talked about that. I know that's controversial, but there is a lot that goes into a police officer's decision to use fatal force. I guarantee you that that's not something that they want to do. The same thing happened in Denver uh, a few weeks ago. The activist distorting facts to cause chaos. Uh, a murder suspect shot and killed himself. And yet activists spread the lie that the police killed him and people rioted. Uh, facts matter. The truth matters. False narratives have deadly consequences. I have said that from the beginning. Uh, unfortunately, I have had friends who in the beginning insisted that, uh, you know, we shouldn't talk about facts. We shouldn't talk about statistics. We uh, that's that's lacking compassion. That's lacking love. We should just add legitimacy to this movement and legitimacy to uh, the rioters and the looters, because this really is a racialized epidemic that's going on. And that's not loving because it's not true. I do think that we should be compassionate. I do think that we should listen to people. I do think that we should talk about real problems and solutions. But I am never going to purposely at least be the person to perpetuate a false narrative in the name of being, quote, compassionate, because that's not compassionate at all. It has deadly consequences. Some of these people are people that you follow who are angry at me for the George Floyd episode that I did right after it happened that I put a lot of effort into actually making as gentle as possible while trying to present us with clarifying uh, facts. And thankfully, there were a lot of you who there were tens of thousands of you, uh, thank God, who um, who listened to that and appreciated that. But unfortunately, those kinds of conversations make some people, even people on the conservative side mad. But there are deadly consequences, like I said, to false narratives, and it is loving and compassionate to correct the record. Uh, I, I don't I just don't see it as beneficial. I don't see it as kind. I don't see it as right to lie to you um, about about anything. And I certainly haven't been perfect, but I have never purposely said something that is false to you in the name of perpetuating a narrative. That doesn't mean that I haven't had to correct the record because I have when people have pointed out, hey, that's wrong. I actually have a clarification to give at the end of this episode. But it is not loving. It is not compassionate. It is not right to perpetuate false narratives in the name of being compassionate. Now, there is a really interesting uh, study that I want to look at in regards to, to all of this by Pew Research. It's titled Voters' Attitudes About Race and Gender Are More Divided Than in 2016. And so it uh, uh, asked the the recipients of this poll to answer a series of questions about race and gender. And it's so interesting and sad how far apart the two sides are, Trump voters versus Biden voters when it comes to things like race. So I'm going to show you the disparities between the two sides. So they were asked the 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 registered voters who were asked this question or uh, they were given the statement to agree with or disagree with it is a lot more difficult to be a black person in this country than it is to be a white person 74% of Biden voters said yes only 9% of Trump voters said yes 
The growing number of newcomers strengthens American uh, strengthens American society. 32 percent of Trump voters say yes. 84 percent of Biden voters say yes. Islam does not encourage violence more than other religions. Only 23 percent of Trump voters said yes. 74 percent of Biden voters said yes. Women today still face significant obstacles that make it harder for them to get ahead than men. 26% of Trump voters say yes. 79% of Biden voters say yes. And also what's interesting is the difference between 2016 and 2020. Uh, here is a statement that uh, Trump voters had to uh, had to respond to and Clinton voters in 2016 had to respond to and then Biden voters had to respond to. White people benefit a great deal from advantage in society that black people do not have. So basically white privilege. Only 4% of Trump voters in 2016 agreed with that statement. 40% of Clinton voters in 2016 agreed with that statement. In 2020, that only went up to 5% for Trump voters who agreed with that statement, but it went up to 59% of Biden voters. So that's a huge change. Only 40% of uh, people who said that they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton said that white people basically have more privilege than black people, a lot of privilege, more privilege than black people in 2016. But 59% of Biden voters say that white people have a lot of advantages that black people don't. And then this question, it is a lot more difficult to be a black person in this country than it is to be a white person. 11% of Trump voters in 2016 agreed with that. Only 9% in 2020 agree with that. But 57% of Clinton voters in 2016 agreed with that. And 74% of Biden voters in 2020 agreed with that. So again, you see a huge change here. Not among Republicans. Republicans have stayed basically the same on this issue over the past four years. But if you look at the Democratic Party, that they have moved to the left on the issue of race over the past four years is obvious by this poll. Uh, Biden backers are more likely than Clinton supporters, according to the study in 2016, to say that obstacles still hinder women's advancement. Once again, uh, Republicans have changed uh, hardly at all when it comes to our view on this. And yet uh, more and more Democrats believe that women have it harder than men do in getting ahead. The same thing goes uh, with Islam that uh, Democrats believe that it is not any more likely than other religions to cause violence. And so what we see is a huge change among the Democratic Party and also a huge change across, uh, well, really just in the youngest generation. So all generations believe that it is more difficult to be a black person than a white person in this country to some extent. So 55% of millennials believe that in 2020, 44% of Gen X, 37% of boomers, and 39% of the silent generation. But only four years ago, all of these numbers were very close. So only 40% of millennials four years ago believed that it was a lot harder to be a black person. Only 36 Gen X, 32 boomer, and 33 uh, the silent generation. So that's increased for all generations, but for millennials, it is increased the most. And so what's interesting about all of this is that the perception of racism has changed. And this is not just over the past four years. 
If you look at another study by Pew Research, Polarization and Politics from 2017, you will see that Democrats' view on race and discrimination against black people greatly shifted uh, in the eight years while Barack Obama was president. And so if you look at uh, this poll, it says racial discrimination is the main reason why many black people can't get ahead these days. In 2010, only 28 percent of Democrats agreed with that statement. Black, white, whatever. Only 28% of Democrats, 9% of Republicans believed that. From 2010 to 2017, that number among Democrats went from 28% to 64% believing that. And so that number is even higher than when the poll started in uh, 1994. Only 39% of Democrats believed that. But in 2017, Uh, 64% of Democrats said they believe that discrimination is the main reason why black people can't get ahead. Now, in 2017, Republicans, uh, only uh, 14% of them actually believed that. And so that is a huge disparity between the two parties, how we actually view race. And what we see is that it is the Democratic Party that has changed their views on that. It is the Democratic Party that has embraced racial extremism, that has embraced critical race theory, that has embraced uh, intersectionality. If you look to see, there's a tool that you can use on Google That shows you when words started to be used in the media, started to be used by Washington Post and New York Times and these left wing outlets. Words like uh, racism and white supremacy and intersectionality all started being used in the past 10 years. And it has divided us. And I want you to ask yourself, has racism, did racism actually increase From 2010 to 2017, has racism in the United States after we had two terms of a black president and have had black people uh, increase, thankfully, in Congress and in the executive branch in various positions as we have had more opportunities presented to people of all backgrounds in America? Has racism actually gotten worse from 1994 to 2017? Of course not. There is no there is no measure, no data that shows that the disparities are worse, that racism has gotten worse, that racial animus has gotten worse, that discrimination has gotten worse, that implicit or explicit bias has gotten worse against black people. And yet the numbers show in the Democratic Party from 1994 to 2017 that The vast majority of Democrats believe that the main reason why black people can't get ahead is because of discrimination when very few, a minority, believed that in 2010 towards the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency. But after eight years of our black president, all of a sudden, the Democratic Party believes that discrimination is maybe worse than ever, that discrimination is now the main reason why black people can't get ahead, but it wasn't the main reason eight years ago. And according to the other study that we looked at, the brand new study, that says that uh, black people have it much harder than white people in America, a minority um, or at least a, a much lower number of Democrats used to believe that that number has jumped dramatically over the past four years. So, again, it is the left. It is the Democratic Party's view on race and racism that has changed dramatically. Republicans view hasn't changed very much at all. And so when the Democrats point fingers to the right and say, you've changed, you've become radical, you've become white supremacist, you've become white nationalist, you've become these racists. This didn't used to be the Republican Party. The Republican views on race and racism have not changed over the past 30 years. And actually, they have corresponded with the progress that we have made 
Whereas Democrats have gone the opposite direction, as there has been more opportunity and and representation for black people in the United States. The perception of racism has dramatically shifted to the left, has dramatically shifted to the extreme of the Democratic Party. And it's not because racism has actually increased. It is because the perception of racism has become uh, has become more popular and talking about race and racism and intersectionality and critical race theory has become more lucrative. Just Ask Robin D'Angelo, who makes uh, who makes six figures more than I mean, she makes hundreds of thousands of dollars probably every year um, in these sessions about white fragility, critical theory and intersectionality. Grievance studies has all become more popular. And so that is why the perception of racism and race has changed. And that is why Black Lives Matter has found fertile soil in the United States and in all the different segments of society. And so narratives matter. The things that media talks about matters. The things that we talk about matters. The movements we latch on to matters. It changes people's perception and it, cur- and it encourages uh, a particular action that sometimes, sometimes ends in a way like we saw in Compton with the two police officers. So we have to be factual. We have to make sure we know what we're talking about. We have to be truthful. We have to look at the facts. Join my book club where we're talking about discrimination and disparities um, written by Thomas Sowell, who talks a lot about these different issues from a factual and data-based, uh, a data-based perspective. It's really important that we have a truthful handle on all of this. Um, okay, let's talk about the wildfires really fast. I just want to correct the record on some of this stuff. Um, so what you are hearing from uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is that this is happening because of climate change. That's what you're going to hear from Democrats. They're trying to link every single crisis to Donald Trump. It's a good political strategy. It makes sense why they're doing it. But the fact of the matter is this has nothing to do with climate change whatsoever. It has to do with the natural climate of California. It also has to do a lot with bad uh, environmental policy. So and it also has to do with the corruption of the public unions, which we'll talk about. Uh, The California wildfires are happening for the same reason that they are having rolling blackouts because of these left wing environmental policies that are meant to help uh, the environment of California, which is actually not helping. It's actually doing the opposite. California's national parks are protected from timber harvesting, and they created that protection to ensure that there were more trees to suck up the CO2. But when you don't have enough harvesting, you have too many trees and you increase the chance of fires, and fires are a huge contributor to CO2, so it's actually doing the opposite of what they intended. This is poor forest management in the name of environmental protection. That's why these wildfires are happening at an increasing rate because of decades and decades of bad liberal environmental policy. The very powerful environmental lobby in California trying to stymie any legislative efforts to fix the problem. This is according to the California Policy Center's website. Quote, Senator Feinstein blames Sierra Club for blocking wildfire bill, reads the provocative headline in a 2002 story in California's Napa Valley Register. Uh, Feinstein had brokered a congressional consensus on legislation to thin overstocked forests close to homes and communities, but could not overcome the environmental lobby's disagreement over expediting the permit process to thin forests everywhere else. 
Year after year, environmentalists litigated and lobbied to stop efforts to clear the forest through timber harvesting, underbrush removal, and controlled burns. Meanwhile, natural fires were suppressed and the forest became more and more overgrown. The excessive biomass completed, competed for the same water, soil, and light a healthier forest would have used, rendering all of the trees and underbrush unhealthy. It wasn't just excess biomass that accumulated, but dried out in dead biomass. In 2009, after huge blazes wiped out homes and forced thousands to evacuate, Los Angeles County Supervisor Mike Antonovich observed the environmentalists have gone to the extreme to prevent controlled burns. And as a result, we have this catastrophe today. In 2014, Republican members of Congress tried again to reduce the bureaucracy associated with hazardous fuel projects that thin out overgrown forests. True to form, the bill got nowhere thanks to environmental lobbyists who worried it would undermine the 19th 69 National Environmental Policy Act, the law that requires thorough impact assessments ahead of government decisions on public lands. Representative Tom McClintock, a Republican who represents communities in and around the Sierra Nevada uh, mountains of Northern California. McClintock has worked for years to reform NEPA and other barriers to responsible forest management. The U.S. Forest Service used to be a profitable federal agency. Up until the mid-1970s, we managed our national forests according to well-established and time-tested forest management practices. But 40 years ago, we replaced these sound management practices with what can only be described as a doctrine of benign neglect. Ponderous Byzantine laws and regulations administered by a growing cater of ideological zealots in our land management agencies promised to save the environment. McClintock said the advocates of this doctrine have dominated our law, our policies, our courts and our federal agencies ever since. The article in uh, the National Policy or in the Policy Center of California says this: Few people, including the experts, bothered to point out how overgrown forests reduce the water supply. But when watersheds are choked with dense underbrush competing for moisture, precipitation and runoff cannot replenish groundwater aquifers or fill up reservoirs. Instead, it's immediately soaked up by the trees and brush. Without clearing and controlled burns, the overgrown foliage dies away. The economics of responsible forest management, given the immensity of America's western forests, requires profitable timber harvesting to play a role. But California has no commercial timber operations on state-owned land. And since 1990, when the environmentalist assault on California's timber industry began in earnest, its timber industry has shrunk has shrunk to half its former size, reviving California's timber industry so the collective rate of harvest equals the collective rate of growth would go a long way towards solving the problem of catastrophic fires. Now, so that's all that. That is the liberal environmental policy that is legislated in the name of saving the planet, but has actually done the opposite. Gavin Newsom wants to say that it's climate change, that that's the problem, because that allows the Democratic Party to have more power, to have leverage over Trump, who they claim is a climate denier and they claim is a science denier. So they are trying to blame the forest fires in California on Donald Trump's policy in Washington, D.C. Of course, that is ludicrous and like. We have just observed it has nothing to do with climate change. It has to do with the California climate, has to do with the counterproductive policies that they have put forth in the name of protecting the environment. But it's not only that, it also has to do 
partly with the firefighters union, who is very powerful in California. So the Policy Center goes on to say this, um, expect California's politically driven firefighters union to do little or nothing to support the timber industry or rural inhabitants who don't want to move into urban condos. As Steve Greenhut explained in a recent column in the Orange County Register, frankly, union power drives state and local firefighting policies. The median compensation package for firefighters has topped $240,000 a year in some locales. California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection firefighters earn less, but still around $150,000 a year. The number of California firefighters who receive compensation packages above $500,000 a year is mind-blowing. So what that means is that California cannot afford to hire more firefighters to fight these fires because uh, they are getting paid so much thanks to the union. That's what the union has lobbied for. Public unions are very powerful. Uh, this is why I have talked about the uh, the dangers of public unions, because your tax dollars are going towards these public unions. They are turning around and fighting for legislation that so often works against you. And they are supporting the Democratic politicians that support them. That's why I'm against teachers unions who do the exact same thing, by the way, the firefighters union and yes, even the police union. I know the police union is for Donald Trump now uh, because of Obviously, the Democratic Party has completely stabbed police officers in the back and their rhetoric towards police officers, unfortunately, is fueling this very dangerous narrative. And so I understand their support for President Trump, but I don't believe in public unions at all. They're completely unethical. And so often they're working against the people that they represent. They are working against the clientele, the people that they are supposed to be serving, and they're working against the state in general. But it is it goes hand in hand. The power usually of the Democratic Party, uh, 99% of the time, these public unions are supporting the Democratic Party and uh, they support the power of the union and it just keeps going back and forth and it is very corrupt. And that is what's happening with the firefighters union in California. Uh, the article goes on to say, and when these firefighter unions could have been pushing for legislation to clear the forest back in 2019, where instead did their leftist leadership direct their activist efforts? They marched in solidarity with the striking United Teachers of Los Angeles. Uh, the teachers unions have done to California's public schools what environmentalists have done to California's forests, which is absolutely true. This teachers union is also the teachers union who uh, who protested a couple months ago that said, we're not going to reopen the schools until you defund the police and unless you ensure Medicare for all. Teachers unions, for the most part, do not care about teachers. They do not care about schools and they do not care about the students. Least of all, they don't care about the students. Uh, they care about power. That's what these public unions are about. And so public unions, once again, are at least in part to blame for uh, the lack of ability to manage these fires the state cannot control or the state cannot afford to hire more firefighters and they desperately need it. So I just wanted to bust some myths on that. Now, let me just talk briefly. A lot of you guys asked me to talk about Cuties. I think that we talked about it a little bit. So Cuties is this French movie that won an award at Sundance and apparently has a lot has had a lot of positive reviews. But the artwork was circulating on Twitter and it was a group of 11 year old girls, very scantily clad in very compromising and obviously sexual positions. And uh, it was or they were representing some kind of dance move, I guess. And it is about this young immigrant girl, 11 years old, who joins this twerking group. And it is supposed to be, it is supposedly 
a critique of the sexualization of girls. That is the peop- That is what the people who are defending it are saying. And so, of course, they're saying that everyone who's freaking out about it is missing the point, that it's art, that it's actually critiquing pedophilia and it's critiquing uh, pressuring girls to grow up too too soon or whatever. But here's the here's the problem with it. Here's why conservatives have a problem with it. It's not because of the artwork. Netflix said, oh, we shouldn't have chosen this artwork for it. Well, we're not mad about the artwork. The question is, were they really posing for the artwork? Like, were those really dance moves that they were doing on camera? I've only seen a couple clips. So I've seen a couple scenes from the movie and the scenes that I saw were awful. There's a way I think that you can tell this story and critique the sexualization of children, which I am all on board with critiquing and condemning. Um, There's a way that you can do that without actually sexualizing the children. I mean, the scenes that I saw of these girls dancing, totally unnecessary. The camera angles on this, totally unnecessary. And whether you like it or not, what you are doing is creating fodder for pedophilia. I mean, there was this podcaster that was going around. I don't even know his name, but the video of his podcast was going around. He was... I don't know, probably a 40-something-year-old guy talking about how it was hot that these girls were doing that and how it's not his fault that he thinks it's hot because he didn't make him, them do that. But that's what it is, and that's the point of this art. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. You're supposed to hold these two thoughts in your mind at the same time. Gross. Gross. Like, that is why we are against this. Whether or not you are making some kind of sophisticated academic statement about child sexualization, the fact of the matter is, is that you are sexualizing children in the process. These are actual human beings who were sexualized, who were dressed this way in front of a camera, who have no idea what they're doing. They're 11 years old, who have no idea the kind of sickos that are going to watch this and who are going to love this and enjoy this and adore this movie from now on because you've got 11-year-olds, 11-year-old prepubescent girls uh, twerking, doing sexual movements, touching themselves in sexual ways, dressed in a sexual way uh, for the camera in close-up shots. And so, of course, you are going to attract pedophiles and you are going to normalize the sexualization of children. Does it matter what political statement you think you're, you're trying to make with that? If you want to make it art, if you want to make it symbolic, then make it artistic and symbolic. You can tell the story. You can render the story in a particular way that doesn't actually sexualize the kids. I I am for, obviously, freedom of expression. I am for art. I believe that art can make important points and important political points even, but not when it comes to sexualizing actual human being children. Like, you're not just talking about it. You're not implying it. It's actually happening on camera. And uh, it does contribute to this idea that young people should have sexual autonomy. There was this uh, there was this article that said, oh, this is um, this is this is scary for uh, an age that is terrified of child sexuality. There's no such thing as child sexuality. Okay. Like, let's just, let's just get that straight. There's no such thing as child sexuality. If you think that there is such a thing as child sexuality, then you are a creepo. You're a creepo. And the big problem with all of this is that you've got left-wing outlets, every left-wing outlet saying that this is a QAnon conspiracy theory. That's a big problem. If you are conflating actual pedophilia, actual sexualization of children, actual sex trafficking. That's not in relation to this movie, but that is um, a a problem that they have tried to conflate with QAnon, an actual problem, something that's actually going on. Well, then you're just aiding and abetting pedophiles and traffickers and people who want to sexualize kids. 
You are conflating it with conspiracy theorists. I've talked about QAnon on this podcast before that they uh, and I think it's a form of Gnosticism that Christians need to avoid um, that. the But the fact that the left is conflating real issues, real things that are going on with conspiracy theories, they make it seem like they are defending pedophilia. I'm not saying that they explicitly are. But it certainly makes it seem that way. And then it also, ironically, tends to give credit to the conspiracy theorists who think that everyone on the left is basically um, employing this powerful cabal to sexualize children and to traffic children and to legitimize pedophilia. Like, if you don't want to give credence to that theory, then you should probably not play into it by denying that these are real problems that are happening. But they're trying to say that everyone who cares about the sexualization of children is an alt-right QAnon troll. And that shows more about you and what you think about children than it does about the people who are concerned with it. Like if you can watch some of those dance scenes with cuties and not be like, you know what, this is uncomfortable. Like this isn't right that these children are being exploited in this way. Then that says something about you, not the people who are concerned with it. It's just so ironic to me that these people that are perpetually offended by everything, that everything is a microaggression. Every hand gesture is racist. Every facial expression is something that is offensive. Every uh, innocuous phrase or implication or uh, subliminal message is bigoted and offensive and wrong. Baby, it's cold outside is the most offensive offensive song out there that should be taken off the radio. Those same people that are offended by everything have no problem with a movie that blatantly sexualizes children. So it just seems that our society, I would say, particularly, particularly, not completely, but particularly on the left, is outraged continually by the wrong things. They're outraged by imaginary things and not outraged by real things. And they try to say that the things that we are outraged by are imaginary when in fact they're not. So we just operate on two totally, uh, totally different planes. And uh, so that's that's what I think about that. Should you cancel Netflix? Um, I think that's a that's a choice that you have to make. There has been probably a lot of inappropriate content on Netflix before this. There's been a lot of inappropriate content on Hulu and Amazon Prime. Should you boycott Disney Plus because they work with the Chinese Communist Party and they worked with them to create Mulan? The Chinese Communist Party is a, a, is a regime that has and condones and uh, and perpetuates uh, slaves and slavery. So should you boycott Disney Plus for that? Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could boycott in the name of not supporting an organization or a business or a platform that seems to either implicitly or explicitly uh, support things and ideas that you don't agree with. And so you just kind of have to decide. You have to decide if you are going to if you're going to support them financially or not. Eventually, conservatives and Christians run out of run out of entertainment platforms. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's how it should be. Maybe we are distracted by the wrong things and we should be focused on things that are better, that are not making our minds atrophy, like watching hours of Netflix and scrolling through our phones incessantly. 
Um, so, okay, I think that's all I have on that. And I will be back here on Friday with an interview with Candace Owens. You might have heard of her. Okay, I will see you guys then. Thank you.